I want to invite you to take your Bible and open it up with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 332. Over the years, I have learned something about myself that I suspect is true of some of you, and you can probably relate to this. If I sit down with, uh, let's just say as an example, a a box of Cheez-Its, I'm going to eat a lot more Cheez-Its if I'm holding the box than if I pour some Cheez-Its into a bowl and put the box away, right? You can apply that to a, a lot of different snacks. If I sit down with a pint of ice cream, I'm going to eat a lot more ice cream than if I just scooped out a little bit into a bowl. Um, marketers know this. They have even drawn attention to it. You may remember the old Pringles slogan, once you pop, can't stop. Uh, Lay's potato chips, bet you can't eat just one. Now, there is obviously, praise God, nothing inherently sinful with snacking in moderation. But I do want to draw an analogy this morning between snacks and sin. And, and the analogy is this, that we don't often have to make ourselves keep snacking. But we do have to make ourselves stop snacking. We, we, we sort of do it mindlessly. We, if, we sit there, if, if, if I sit there and there's a box of Cheez-Its next to me, I won't even think about it. I'll just reach in there and grab a few and I'll eat them. And a few minutes later, I'll reach in there and grab some more. I have to make myself put them away. The same is true with sin. We naturally drift towards sin, not away from it. We have to choose to put it away. We have to choose not to put ourselves in situations where it will be easily accessible. If we're not careful, one sin will lead to another and to another and to another. We're going to see that sadly play out in the life of David this morning. We're going to begin this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said... Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. We're going to stop there, and let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and I pray, Spirit, that You would speak through Your Word today. God, help us to be, um, to be corrected and reproved and uh, sharpened by what You say. And Lord, that in all of this we would behold your character, your glory, your holiness, and indeed your mercy 
to us as sinners. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we, as we pick up here in 2 Samuel 10, what I want you to do is I want you just to, to glance back over the past couple chapters. Um, you may have to turn back a page or two. or In my Bible, they just all happen to be on the same two pages, chapters 8, 9, and 10. The, the headings in your Bible are not God-breathed. They are added there by Bible translators to help us find different passages or to kind of, as you're skimming, to sort of give you a summary of what's going on. The, the heading in my Bible over chapter 8 says David's victories. Your Bible probably says something similar to that. In chapter 8, you hear this phrase repeated over and over, David defeated this enemy, and David defeated that enemy, and David defeated this enemy, and David defeated that enemy. And toward the end of chapter 8, we're told um, in verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. So chapter 8 is about David's victories over other nations and the justice with which he reigned in his own nation. Chapter 9, the heading over it is David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Chapter 9 is all about David's kindness, his covenant faithfulness. And at the beginning of chapter 10, we see both of those themes intertwined. David's victory and justice and his kindness. Chapter 10 begins with news that the Ammonite king Nahash died This king is one that David had subdued in chapter 8. And uh, notice what David says in verse 2. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. And the word translated there in verse 2, loyally, where David says, I will deal loyally with Hanun, as his father dealt loyally with me, that word is the same word that was used in chapter 9 to refer to David's kindness toward Mephibosheth. It's the word hesed. It's, it's a word that implies covenant faithfulness and loyalty. So there was apparently some kind of understanding. We might call it today a sort of treaty, as it were, between David and, and uh, Nahash, the Ammonite king. And now that Nahash is dead, David is essentially saying, I'm going to continue abiding by that treaty and by this partnership that we have together. And of course, the way he does that is first he sends messengers to comfort uh, Hanun after the death of his father. Well, what I want you to notice before we get into that is this um, symmetry, if if you will, between uh, chapters 9 and 10. It's not an accident that the author places these stories one after the other. So in chapter 9, David deals loyally or kindly with Mephibosheth, who was the son of Jonathan, just as Mephibosheth's father had dealt loyally or faithfully with him. And in chapter 10, David declares his intention to do the same toward Hanun, the son of the Ammonite king Nahash. I'm going to deal kindly or loyally with him as his father dealt with me. The problem is, as we read in our verses this morning, Hanun responds foolishly to David's act of kindness. When David sends these servants as a gesture of friendship to console Hanun over his father's death, the Ammonite prince's 
warn Hanun, this could all be some kind of trap. These servants that David has sent, they claim to be comforters, but they may very well be spies. They may be sent by David here just to search out the city because David wants to overthrow you. And of course, if you, if you stop and think about it, there's absolutely no reason why they should think that, considering the the understanding and the covenant, the treaty that David has had with the Ammonites. There's no reason that now David would suddenly flip in some way. But regardless of what these counselors, what their intentions or motives might have been, Hanun listens to them and he responds to this benevolent gesture by taking David's messengers and shaming them. Look again at verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Now, it doesn't, you don't have to have a degree to know. All right, people wore robes in this time, so if you cut off their garments at the hips, that left them exposed. The act of shaving off half the beard was not just a, an act of physical humiliation, although it would have been, but it was an act of cultural and religious shaming because you may know in the Old Testament law there were instructions about what men should and should not do with their beards. And so for them to have half their beard shaved off was not just physically humiliating, it was an act of, of ritual shaming, which is why David allows them to sort of stay in Jericho until their beards grow back before they return to Jerusalem. It's it's not terribly surprising when you read verses 1 through 5 that what happens after this is war breaks out between Israel and Ammon. And this war serves as the backdrop for what's going to happen in chapters 11 and 12. And so we need to kind of glance at this backdrop before we get to chapter 11. As with any war, there are a number of distinct battles. I want to try to summarize this rather than us reading all of chapter 10. So this is my summary of, of just stage one of this war between Israel and Ammon. The first thing that happens is the Ammonites decide we're going to hire over 30,000 Syrian mercenaries. That's what they do, and they, their, their plan is to attack Israel from two sides. They're going to force Israel to fight on two fronts. So David's commander, Joab, splits the army. He chooses some of the most skilled fighters, and he leads them against the Syrians, and he leaves the rest of the army under the leadership of his brother Abishai to battle the Ammonites. And Israel wins. It's... Unlikely, but they do win. The Syrian mercenaries flee, and after they flee, the Ammonites flee as well. And then, after a temporary retreat, the Syrians regroup, they get reinforcements, and chapter 10 ends with David leading Israel in victory over the Syrians. And so chapter, in, uh, chapter 10 ends with the Syrians basically determining that we are going to stay out of this war. We're not going to insert ourselves into this anymore. This is now just between Ammon and Israel. So that's, that's the, just the first stage of the war. Israel wins the initial stage. The war is far from over. And the custom in this time was that you didn't fight during winter. You know, there was just no sense in 
risking that because you are likely to have more casualties on both sides. The weather doesn't, you know, discern between sides. And so they would break. Both sides would sort of have a truce during the winter, and then they would regroup and begin battle again in the spring. That's where chapter 11 picks up. And we're going to pick up there the beginning of chapter 11. And in the very first verse, the author sounds an alarm bell. Now, before we read, just want to remind you how, how active David has been. Chapter 8, defeating, 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 defeating. In chapter 9, showing kindness to Mephibosheth. In chapter 10, he's still active, defeating the Syrians. Chapter 11, verse 1 is, is a big-time alarm bell. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That is an editorial note to remind us that uh, the baby that's about to be conceived has to be David's. It cannot be Uriah's. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. We're going to pause there. I want to summarize the big idea of chapters 10 and 11 in this way. That sin often leads to more sin, and that is true of even the most faithful of God's servants. Sin often leads to more sin, and that is true of even the most faithful of God's servants. Let's break that statement 
in half. First, sin often leads to more sin. We see that in David's life. It all ends with Uriah the Hittite dead. David did not thrust the sword. He did not pull the bow, but he is certainly responsible. What's more, think about all the other people that David involved in this act. To cover up his sin, he has to get Joab to retract the army at just the right moment that Uriah would be struck and killed. On top of all that, David sends Uriah back to the battlefield carrying the instructions for his own death. Don't miss that irony that David sends this letter to Joab by the hand of Uriah. So David makes Uriah carry the letter that says, essentially, kill Uriah. The question I want us to ponder is, how did we get there? How did we get from David administering justice in chapter 8 and dealing faithfully with Mephibosheth and Hanun in chapters 9 and 10? How did we get from justice and faithfulness to what we have here in chapter 11, which is a total disregard for justice and for faithfulness? The answer is that there were a lot of steps in between. That's how sin works. When we don't repent of sin, it leads to more sin. I don't know, but I doubt very much that David woke up one morning and said to himself, I would really like to have one of my most valiant men murdered. We later learned that Uriah was one of the, most, one of the 30 most elite warriors in David's army. I doubt very much that David woke up and said, you know, what, you know who I've really got it out for is Uriah the Hittite. I'd really like to see him dead. That choice came about after a series of other bad choices. The way that David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, that is fairly obvious. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He then deceived Uriah and ultimately had him killed. What I want us to do is to take a step back and consider the ramifications of David's actions for the whole nation. Now, full disclosure, I've never been in the midst of battle. But I can imagine that it would be stressful. Again, we later, we later learned that Uriah was one of the most elite of elite warriors in David's army. And David is taking him away from the battlefield because he's trying to save his own skin. And of course, messengers are having to go back and forth. I, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that there are other people's lives who are probably being endangered by this. Both physical and human resources are being wasted because of David's attempt to cover up his sin. Now let's just try to put this into a modern analogy. Can you imagine the scandal that there would be if we learned that the President of the United States committed adultery with the wife of a Navy SEAL who was on active duty, and that he wasted government resources in a cover-up attempt, and that he endangered the lives of those on the front lines, and that he ultimately orchestrated events such that the Navy SEAL was killed in action. If that happened, not only would the, you know, the president be impeached and thrown out of office, but there would probably be several other people in the chain of command that would be caught up in that. That would be a scandal unlike one we have probably never had in our country. And if that would be scandalous for the president of the United States, how much more should it be for the leader of God's covenant people? 
But David's sin did not begin with murder. It did not begin with cover-up or deceit. It did not begin even with adultery. Before adultery there was lust, as verse 2 says, David saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. What I want you to see, however, is even that was not the beginning of David's sin. His sin began not with something he did, but with something he did not do. Now we sometimes group different sins into two categories, and this is helpful. Some are called sins of commission. That is, sins that we commit, that we do. Something we do or say or think. Something sinful. But there are also sins of omission. That's when we omit to do some good that we ought to do when we fail to do or say or think the right thing. So... A sin of commission. There are, there are many of those here in chapter 11. Lust, adultery, deceit, murder. We might could uh, parse things down fine enough where we found a, a few more, but those are the big ones. Lust, adultery, deceit, murder. Those are some sins of commission, some sins that David commits. But before all of that is this sin of omission that we hear in verse 1, that David was not fulfilling his responsibilities as king. He should have been in battle, and he was not. Now again, we can't you know, sort of draw a, a, connect, a, a direct line between David and us and say, well, as long as we're not in battle, we're sinning. That's not the point. The point is, that was David's responsibility as king. And he was failing to fulfill his God-given responsibility. And any time we fail to fulfill some God-given responsibility that we have, then that is sin. Because David was not fulfilling his responsibilities, he was in a position where he could lust. And that lust led to adultery, and that adultery led to deceit, and that deceit led to murder. So that's why the big idea was that sin often leads to more sin. We see a sin of omission lead to a series of sins of commission. And the second half of that big idea is that this fact is true of even the most faithful of God's servants. One of the, um, one of the takeaways that we ought to have when we read a story like 2 Samuel 11 is, if it could happen to David, then it could happen to me. Because David is generally assessed well. He was a good king. He was a righteous person. This massive failure does not make him a bad king. So we ought to be amazed at the wideness of God's grace. God is going to be very merciful to David. Now I, I want to be clear. God's grace is going to show up in a very specific way in David's life. In chapter 12. So when I say that God is merciful and gracious to David, what I don't mean is that God is going to just overlook this failure. That's not how God shows His grace and mercy. It's just by overlooking sin or saying it's not that big a deal. God treats David's sin very seriously. And even though David is going to be restored, and even though 
by the end of his life, he's going to be considered to be generally a faithful and righteous king, there are going to be heartbreaking and long-lasting consequences for what he does here in 2 Samuel 11. What I want you to take away this morning is that you are not immune to this same level of sin. There are so many ways that we deceive ourselves about sin. I want to identify three of those for us this morning. Three ways we deceive ourselves about sin. The first way we deceive ourselves is by saying, I would never, ever do what David did. I would never do that. We do, we do that. We think that sometimes, don't we? We, we? Whether it's what we see David do or what we see someone else do, I could never do blank. I want to I go so far as to say that if that is your response to 2 Samuel 11, if your response is, I would never do that, then you are already on the slippery path towards sin. You've already taken the first step down the path because you are dangerously unestimating your own capacity for sin. Now, here's why we think that. The reason why we deceive ourselves into thinking, I would never do that, is because we have a difficult time imagining ourselves committing the sin that is at the end of the path. I don't think I could have the stomach to have someone murdered. Well, I don't think I'd do either. But the, the, the problem is there's a whole path and there are a lot of other sinful steps that David takes down that path before he gets to that one. The path does not start at the end. There were lots of sinful choices that David made before he sent Uriah back to the battlefield, even before he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. And so we have to be careful about the seemingly smaller choices we make lest they lead us into greater and greater sin. So you may have never committed adultery or murder, but you've probably committed sins of lust and deceit. So what I'm trying to get you to see is if, you, if you've been on that same path that David was on, and I certainly don't think any of us would say, well, I'm just inherently more righteous than David... Well, if you've been on that path and you didn't make it all the way to the end, then that's God's grace. It's not, it's not your righteousness. It's God's restraining mercy. So we've probably committed some of these sins, and we've certainly all failed to fulfill our responsibilities at some time or another. That's the point, is that sins that we perceive to be smaller often lead to greater and greater sin unless we repent, unless we turn around. So the first way we deceive ourselves is by saying, I would never do what David did. The second way we deceive ourselves is by thinking, I can keep my sin concealed. I can, I can cover it up. And um, you, you may have done a good job at that. You may have covered it up. You may, nobody else may know about it but you and God. You may think it's not hurting anyone else. It's just in your own head. It's just in your own heart. You've convinced yourself that it will always stay that way. And if you have convinced yourself of that, then you are deceiving yourself. I want you to notice how the chapter ends. 
David gets word that the deed has been done, that Uriah is dead. And notice what David says in verse 25. This is him speaking to the messenger who brought him the news about Uriah. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. That's not where it ends, though, is it? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Up until that point, David thinks he's gotten away with it. And he has up until that point. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I don't want you to miss the irony between what David says in verse 25 and what the author tells us in verse 27. In verse 25, he tells Joab via this messenger, do not let this matter displease you. But in verse 27, the author says, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The literal phrase there is, Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. The chapter ends, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David even has the audacity to tell the messenger to encourage Joab. Be encouraged, friend. You know, the battlefield is a tricky place. Things happen. The sword devours sometimes one and sometimes another. You never can tell what's going to happen. So keep fighting and be encouraged and don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the point is, you may think that you can conceal your sin, but even if no one else knows, even if, even if other people do know, but they're not displeased by your sin. Because at the end of the day, David had not perfectly concealed his sin. Joab knew. You think the messenger probably had a, a whiff about what was going on. So even if no one else is displeased, the Lord sees and He knows And everything that is hidden will one day be revealed. So we can deceive ourselves by thinking, I would never do what David did. Or we can deceive ourselves by thinking, well, I've sinned, but it's it's not a big deal, and it's just between me and God, and I've got it under control. I've got it all covered up. The third way we can deceive ourselves is by thinking, I will be fine as long as I keep this sin concealed. I'll be fine as long as I keep my sin concealed. When I was in seminary, Rebecca and I got to know this young woman. She's about our age. She had gotten pregnant out of wedlock when she was a teenager. And she had grown up in church and her parents were very active in their church. And when she got pregnant, many people in her church were were very, very ugly to her, very rude in their words and their tone and their looks. Now, 
the most important detail of this story is that she was totally remorseful for her sin. She was not continuing to engage in immorality. She had broken it off with this guy and was living in purity. And uh, she was, you know, resolved to raise her son, uh, which was good. And um, if she had not been repented, repentant, that would be a whole other story that, you know, there would be need to be a call for repentance, but she was genuinely sorrowful and was committed to purity and to raising her son. So this was a situation where the church should have treated her with grace. They should have said, you know, we're disappointed, um, but we love you. We're thankful that you have repented. We're thankful that you've broken it off with this guy and that you're not continuing to live in sin. And... We want to be there for you. We want to walk with you to help you to do right by your son. Instead, they were self-righteous and ugly to her, and she was hurt by that for a season. And I can remember us talking to her and Rebecca saying something very wise. Rebecca said, the only difference between you and everyone in that church is you can't cover up your sin as well as they can. And she was right. Because a baby bump, you, you can't hide it forever. And of course, there were ways that she could have covered up her sin, and praise God, she didn't. So she could not, she didn't have the option of concealing her sin. She did not give herself that option. And that belly was a visible, constant reminder of a sinful mistake she had made a sinful mistake for which she was genuinely sorry and from which she had repented. It's not that she was more sinful than anyone else. It's just that her sin couldn't be hidden as easily. What I want you to hear this morning is that just because you, you think you can conceal your sin does not mean that you should. In fact, I would suggest to you that it is God's grace that David's sin is going to be found out. It is His grace that God does not allow David to go on living his life concealing this. The reason I say that is because David says that. Because David later, in hindsight, understood that. In Psalm 32, he describes what it feels like to deceive and to try to keep your sin covered. He says, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In other words, that was not pleasant. It wasn't pleasant to be deceiving others and trying to keep his sin covered. And not just because of what he was afraid would happen if people found out, but because, as he puts it, the Lord's hand was heavy upon him day and night. He was under conviction. And that is the mercy of God. I wonder if you can relate to that, if you feel like your insides are being eaten, if you're wasting away, your strength is dried up because the Lord's hand is heavy upon you. You don't have to live like that. You, there is freedom in confessing your sin to God. David says in the very next verse, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Everything did not immediately get easy the moment that David eventually confessed his sin to the Lord. But the most significant thing, the most important thing got set right. He says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Once I quit trying to cover it up, once I acknowledged it to you, once I confessed it to you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God didn't keep David on a string and say, well, if you do this extra thing, if you do a little bit more, then I'll forgive you. No, the moment he acknowledged it, the moment he stopped covering it up, the moment he confessed it, the Lord forgave him. And you and I have the very same promise in the Word of God. 1 John 1, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to read one more verse from Psalm 32. I was reading it again this morning, and it struck me as, as I was trying to ready my own heart and as I was praying for you. This is God speaking to David after he has acknowledged his sin. And God says to him, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. There's a way that you could read this and say that this is God speaking to David or it could be David speaking to us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then he says in Psalm 32, 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. That's, that's uh, a pretty good application for us this morning. We've seen the mercy that God has toward those who confess their sin to Him. We've seen the turmoil that someone lives in when they try to conceal their sin and all the ramifications that it leads to. We've seen all the ways that we try to deceive ourselves about it. We try to say it's not so bad. I can handle it. I'll cover it up. I'll be fine. And the application is don't be like a horse or a mule that is stubborn and that refuses to come in when the master says it's time to come home. Because if you're like a horse or a mule and you want to stay out there, then all you're doing is hurting yourself. You're just refusing to come in to the shelter that He's provided for you. You're refusing to eat the food that He has provided for you. You're refusing to have the relationship that He has purchased for you. So don't be like a horse or a mule this morning, but listen and respond to the call of the Savior. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. And this is our opportunity to respond. This is our opportunity to not be like a horse or a mule. I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. The altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your abundant, forgiving, cleansing mercy. 
And we see that in the life of David, one who sinned so egregiously. And yet, Lord, You restored him and forgave him and cleansed him. Lord, perhaps there's some, someone here this morning who either is already on that path or may be far down that path of being um, defiled and soiled by their own sin, their own sinful choices. Lord, perhaps there's someone who's here this morning who is at risk of making a very damaging decision in the near future if they refuse to turn around and come home. Lord, I pray that Your Word would keep us from sin and that Your Word would turn our eyes toward Jesus to behold His glory and grace and to trust in Him. We pray all this in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.